السلام عليك زين الأنبياء السلام عليك بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم تسليم على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم أجمعين سبحانك لا إلمنا لا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم Alhamdulillah, welcome back. We are now on session three, as was stated. And the title of this session is Ilm Tariq Al-Akhirah, translated as The Science of the Way to the Hereafter. What we tried to do last night was begin with some introductory matters and speaking, of course, a little bit about the author of the book, Imam Ghazali. And we wanted to also speak about, we spoke about his introduction to the entire Ihya al-Umadeen, which comes in the Book of Knowledge. And then we looked at some of the key features of both his introduction and of Book 1, the Book on Knowledge. And one of the most important take-homes there is that, as Imam Ghazali himself states in the introduction, Understanding knowledge properly is the most important of affairs because it sets the tone for everything else after it. And if you look in terms of human action, knowledge comes before your will, which comes before your power, and then your acting. So in other words, is that the only thing that would come before knowledge when you talk about human traits is life. You have to be alive to actually ever do a voluntary act, obviously. But if you have life, then before you can exercise your will, you have to have knowledge. It's inconceivable that anyone would ever do anything that they never thought about, that they had zero knowledge of. If you never, ever, ever knew that China existed, you would never intend ever to go there because you never knew there was a country or a place called China. So knowledge is a prerequisite for will, which is a prerequisite for your qudra, your power, i.e. your ability to do things that leads to behavior. And they all follow in succession. And this is why knowledge is so important. And Ustaz Amjad reminded us last night how knowledge is the imam and action follows. So it's important that we have knowledge in general, but it's also important that we have the correct conception of knowledge. And this cannot be emphasized enough. How many people think that they have knowledge, but in reality, their knowledge is the epitome of ignorance. Or it could even be compound ignorance, which is even worse. They're ignorant and they don't know they're ignorant. And even worse, they're ignorant, don't know they're ignorant, and they think that they really, really know. And even worse, they have horrible traits, reprehensible traits, like arrogance and um, vanity and so forth and so on, as a result of the knowledge that they think they have. And so it's of the utmost importance, before we do anything, we have to have knowledge. Al-hukum You cannot give a judgment on any matter 
until you correctly conceive of it. You must conceive correctly of any situation first before you can make a judgment. And we all fall into this, unfortunately. Those of us that have children know that sometimes you think something happened and you hasten, you discipline your kids, and then you come to find out, oh, it wasn't actually as you thought. And then you're regretful because you responded too harshly or you took the wrong person to task. And there's more to the story. So we can't do anything, whether we are helping people with their relationships, whether we are deciding on a particular matter, whether you want to accept a job or move to a particular place or whatever it is, conceiving the matter. And this is why it's so important to seek advice from people and so forth and so on. But in relation to what Imam Ghazali is teaching us, knowledge is the starting point. And the correct conception of knowledge goes along with that understanding of knowledge as a starting point. And as we will see, and we'll talk about this when we get a little bit more into the concept of in tariqat akhirah, sometimes people think that Imam al-Ghazali is saying something that he's not. And one of the great proofs that Imam al-Ghazali is not against knowledge, obviously, he was a great scholar in of himself. His knowledge positioned him to be able to present this book that we have before still to this day, the Hilum Din. And one of the last books that he wrote during his lifetime was the Mustasfa, which is a book of usul, Islamic legal theory. And why that was the book that he wrote at the end of his life and how that relates to his project of Tajdeed. Um, I haven't seen many people speak about that, and that would be a very interesting that topic to research. However, he, we know that he wrote the book, and he wrote it towards the end of his life. And this is one of the, the important sciences of the Sharia, the science of usul. So obviously, he's not against knowledge. He's not against scholarship. And he's not against fulfilling a fard kifaya, a communal obligation, as we will see in the afternoon session today when we'll go into detail about beneficial knowledge and how that manifests as individual obligations and communal obligations and so forth. However, we can't have anything in our life, our conception of knowledge, our approach to knowledge, anything that is that we do in our life, take us away from the most important aspects of life, which is the preparation to meet Allah. That's really the center, central point of what he's trying to, to get at. Don't let anything take you away from getting close to Allah. This is what it's all about. Always maintain clarity in your mind of the means, the worldly ends, and then the ultimate ends. And there are a set of intentions that we can make that these intentions are the ultimate intentions that we make behind everything that we do. First and foremost, to draw near to Allah to attain his good pleasure, subhanahu wa ta'ala, to enter into paradise, to draw near to him, and to get reward for what we do. Those five intentions. Those underlie, or they should underlie, all of our actions. And then after that, you can make a number of other intentions as well. Because there are worldly ends. In other words, that things that we do in and of themselves 
and where they're not there in a worldly sense for anything else, like having good character. And we have to be very careful with some of the utilitarian tendencies of our time, where we do what is convenient because we want a particular result, because it's practical, because it's functional, because there's some type of worldly benefit involved in it. No, being a principled person means you maintain your principles, even if you have to go through hardship, even if you have to not accept that money, not get that job, retire or to, um, uh, to uh, that leave a particular job or step down from a particular position. Maintaining principles is, is not easy. And this idea of maintaining principle goes hand in hand with this concept. So in Tariq al-Akhira, three words. And again, this is the thrust of the Ihya. This is the thrust of the entire Ihya. It is the backbone. It flows through the entire Ihya. Everything about the Ihya from beginning to end, its structure, its content, everything about this book, it all revolves around in Tariq al-Akhira. Everything in the Ihya. And by extension, all of the books of Imam al-Ghazali post-Nilamiya. And even though he coined this term, what he does is essentially relates it to the way of the Salaf. So in other words, his understanding of Imtariq al-Akhira is the way of the forebears. This is the way that the people before us were. He just articulated it. And what a blessing to have someone articulate it for us in this particular language so that you and I can apply those principles in any time. Because if you keep it somewhat abstract, the way of the salaf, well, what does that mean? Well, Imam Ghazali is telling us the essence of the way of the salaf is ilm tariq al-akhirah. Three words. Ilm, knowledge. Okay, but the preferred translation here is science. Because it's systematic. Tariq literally is a path or a way. So knowledge, science, ilm, tariq, path or way. And then you have the akhirah, the afterlife or the hereafter. You can choose whichever one that you want. So the science of the way to the hereafter. And again, that you have so much beauty in the diversity of tripartite breakdowns. So the MJ pointed it out yesterday when he was talking about learning, practicing, and then teaching, knowledge, devotion, and service, iman, islam, and ihsan, sharia, tariqah, and haqiqah, all of these different beautiful breakdowns. And Imam Ghazali, interestingly, does that as well in this term that he coined, ilm, tariq, al-akhirah, knowledge, the path, and then the hereafter. And so they all relate one to another in very beautiful ways. So I would like to preface our discussion of this with the following. Um, one of the things that um, has been noticed in spending time within the Muslim community for quite a bit of time now, um, I've, I've noticed that there are 
a lot of Muslims that are very good people and want to do good. But oftentimes they don't know how to do good. And even if they want to spend, whether it be their time or their wealth or their energy or anything in the way of doing good, if they're given the ability to do it for a short period of time, there's very few people that can do that for an extended period of time. And a lot of people will come and go. Different stages of their life will bring about different challenges, whether it be going to college, whether it be getting married, whether it be having kids, whether it be getting a job, whether it be going through a health complication, whether it be losing a loved one, different things tend to derail. And that's a strong word I know. Uh, different people from that different ways of doing good. And why is this the case? I think part of our struggle here in the United States of America and places where people have grown up far from the traditional Muslim world. And there's a lot of beauty still in the traditional world of the Muslims. And I'm not going to talk about politics and some of the dysfunctionality there, or economics or any of that stuff, but there's immense good. And if you can't see that, I don't know what you're looking at. I remember seeing that very clearly as a young convert traveling in different places in the Muslim world. There is immense good in the Muslim world still. There's Odia, there's Adifin, there's scholars, the family structure, the culture. There's so much beauty still, despite all of the problems and dysfunctionality. And when we live in a country like the one that we live in, and we don't have generations upon generations of examples before us, and we have unprecedented challenges, and we're dealing with a rate of change that is exponential, and all of these other factors that contribute <clears throat> to the confusion. One of the things that we're missing here is a methodology. And what is meant by that is a systematic way that you and I approach our dean, where the next thing that is trending on Twitter or Facebook or whatever else, what is our position in relation to that? And you see Muslims get sucked into these different tendencies. And for a few years, it will be this. And then for a few years, it will be this. And then for a few years, it will be this. And now having been Muslim for over 20 years, actually now going on the 25th year, you see various trends that take people in different directions. The constant should be in tariq al-akhirah. Because we're not saying that we don't engage, on the contrary. But what good is our engagement if it's not principled? What good is our engagement in politics or academia or the corporate world or anything for that matter if it's not principled? If we're just going to get sucked into another person's worldview, in another person's perspective, in another person's way of doing things. We have a unique way as Muslims. And yes, there's common ground that we share oftentimes with other people who believe in other faiths and just people who have <clears throat> uh, just some degree of rationality. However, we have a unique way of doing things. And our only option really is to learn that way, embody it, and then contribute freely and help humanity. So we need clarity in relation to our deen 
just as we need grounding, just as we need a holistic perspective and approach to our religion and every single aspect of our religion, religion as it manifests in our lives. This is of the utmost importance. And other, in other words, we need a methodology. How do we look out at the world? What is our approach to life? So that the next tribulation that comes our way or the next circumstance that we are facing that we have to deal with, it's going to help us define what it is that we then do. And if you see people that have a methodology, they are firm. They are firm. And the great people of Allah that are firm, if you listen to a recording of theirs 20 years ago, it's the same discourse. 30 years ago, it's the same discourse. Before such and such event, the same discourse. After such and such event, the same discourse. And that's what we need. We need stability. We need grounding. We can't afford to go this way and then that way and then this way and then that and become confused. And what I'm talking about is not necessarily the most popular thing. It's not going to get you a lot of likes on Facebook. It's not going to get you that Saturday night slot at the conferences. But who cares? Does that any even matter? Conferences have their benefit. But the whole point of this dean is not to speak in the conference on the Saturday night slot. It's so that you and I can meet Allah in a good state. That in the end, if you're about to take your last breath and leave this world and depart from it, you're not going to care about a Saturday night slot at a 20,000 plus person conference. You're going to care that you weeped before Allah in the wee hours of the night. And that you prayed ruka'at, small cycles of prayer in the wee hours of the night. That's really what's going to matter. And that the, 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 the worry really is many of the efforts in the community, because Muslims, mashallah, are engaging at many different levels. But are they substantial? Are they grounded in that what we believe to be the truth? Are they principled? This is really the question. And I don't want to take from what other people are doing. I want to be positive. But the worry is, and I guess some of us that uh, were, were raised as, as uh, in, a, in another faith, and in particular, those of us that were raised as Protestant Christians, and we've kind of seen what has happened to Protestant Christianity in the lands in which we live in really all strands of Christianity, you can see this, that you can see that worry is very real that you see these tendencies creeping into the Muslim community. And it's scary because the thing is, the way shaitan works, he doesn't just come take you from here to here all of a sudden. Small little things, small little things, small little things, small little things. Until all of a sudden, you're way over here. And it's too late. And it's hard for you to get back in one go all the way over here. Just as you eased into getting here, you have to ease into getting back over here. Right. And this is, Yani, you know, the khutawat, these like little steps that shaitan takes towards leaving you astray. So we need a methodology. And if you understand what Imam al-Ghazali is trying to teach us in the Ahiyyul Medin, 
And the framework that he's trying to lay for us in the Kitab al-Ilm, it is a huge step in that direction of understanding what our methodology should be. And if you can understand that well, and then spend the time thinking about how to apply it to the various aspects of your life, you will come away with something that is priceless. Because you could argue that learning a methodology is just as important, and in some instances more important, than learning the individual aspects of knowledge. And that applies that to knowledge in general, just as it applies to the various sciences. So, ilm tariqat akhira, that the scholars who have really studied this is that they say that, you know, this really is the heart of the Hayalumuddin. And if we want to move towards a definition, we could say something along the lines, and this is a bit of a fancy word, so bear with me, but we'll unpack it. It is the teleological discipline devoted to the systematic preparation of the individual soul for the ultimate encounter with Allah. So the teleological discipline, that this word teleological means focusing on the end. What's going to happen ultimately? And this is reflected in this phrase, the akhir, the hereafter. We're all going to the hereafter, which is eternal. So it is a discipline that helps us systematically prepare each individual soul that is for the encounter with Allah, for our eternal life. And as was mentioned, Imam Ghazali, who among, he was, as the scholars have told us, is among those, and he was actually one of those that was agreed upon, uh, if you could even say that, that he was the mujaddid of the fifth Islamic century. And his tajdeed, his renewal, is inextricably linked to this concept of so you can't really understand his what he's doing in the Ihya because he said the third thing remember from the introduction was he wanted to write a book to revive the religious sciences you have to understand that in light of what he knew because he was told by the righteous during his time that he was going to take part in the renewal of this faith. And this idea of tajdeed stems from a prophetic hadith, and it's a hadith related by Abu Dawood, where the Prophet said that Allah will send to this community at the turn of every century, one, or you could say those, is men in Arabic, but you could translate it as one or those who will renew the religion for it. Okay, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal that said this means Allah will dispatch to people at the turn of every century someone or those who will teach them the sunan 
and ward off lies from the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So this early interpretation, it formed the basis of later scholarly views and defined the role of the Mujaddid, the renewer, as twofold. Teaching the prophetic sunnah and protecting it from innovation. And what a blessing for us to have a concept of being wary of innovation. Because again, this is what prevents the decadence. This is what prevents the degeneration by being very careful not to add anything into the religion, being very wary to do things differently than the way that those people did before us. And again, each one of the companions, the great companions who were in charge after the Prophet they did do things that weren't done during the time of the Prophet but they were extremely careful. They were extremely careful. In the first response of Sayyidina Bakr Siddiq after Sayyidina Umar al-Khattab uh, advised him to gather the Quran in one book because it was all written down during the time of the Prophet was that how could I do something that the Prophet himself didn't do during his life? But then he realized it was important to do and he did it. So that is a fine line between doing something slightly differently in your time that's valid and accepted with Allah and doing it in a way that's actually not accepted with Allah. It's very, there's a fine line and you have to be very wary and this is where, and people, some people just simply don't understand this, especially when you start getting on the movement-oriented spectrum and beyond, is that there's inner confirmations that the people of Basira, of inner sight, and the people of hearts have that give them that solace that this is the right thing to do. And in the example that was just mentioned, when Sayyidina Omar, even though he was initially the one who advised Sayyidina Bukha Siddiq with, to, get, to compile the Qur'an, he said, when I saw that the heart of Sayyidina Abu Bakr was expanded towards it, I knew that it was good. What was his dalil? Is that the sharh of the sadr of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq. That's Sayyidina Omar. That, of course, all the outward criterion were there for the six people that he set up to vote who was going to be the caliph after him. But what did he say? These were the six people that the Prophet sent him past and he was content with. The Prophet was content with all the companions, Kamaradullah, complete contentment. They, of course, had all of the outward requirements. He's not going to put someone in a position that doesn't have an outward requirement. But his real criterion, his stated criterion was what? Those were the ones that the Prophet passed Sallallahu that was completely content with. And again, we've mentioned this before. Why did Imam Bukhari, <clears throat> in addition to his outward criterion of accepting hadith, pray two rak'as of istikhara before he put a hadith into his collection? What does worship have to do with an objective criterion for accepting hadith? Both are needed. There's an outward dimension and there's an inward dimension. And these very subtle mawaqaf and stances that need to be taken, you have to be very careful.
And that's why those of us living in these lands, it's very important that we visit our teachers regularly so that we can recalibrate. Because when you live in a place that's far from the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the centers of Islam, you live far from your teachers. If you live there long enough, you'll slowly start to get comfortable with life there and maybe very slowly start to get, make certain decisions that not, aren't necessarily the best. They might not be way off. They could be way off, but they might just be slightly off. And when you go back and spend time with your teachers, you recalibrate and you adjust and you reassess and so forth and so on. And this is the way that it has to be. We're all human beings. And this is the way of the people before us is that they just didn't study for two or three years with teachers and that's it. No, that's ridiculous. You know, even with, you know, this whole, yes, okay, it's okay to have a program that's four years, six years or something like that. But to think that someone khalas becomes an alim and that's it. And no, it's not like that. You know, to really, really become a scholar with the real meaning of the word and how we should define it takes 20 years. It takes time. It doesn't come in five or seven, or eight years, or even 10 years. Really, if you want to define the one, if you just want to throw the term around and that you're dealing in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man rules, that's different. But a, 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 someone who's really a scholar in the sense of the word, word, that they understand the time in which they live, they understand the context of the people that they are speaking to, and they understand their dean, and they can articulate that the realities of it in their context, that takes time. That takes time. And you have to, a time of dedication. We're not doing a whole bunch of other things. We're specializing in that. So that, um, as, so he says, as twofold, teaching the prophetic sunnah and preventing it from innovation. Muli Ali Qari, radiallahu anhu, States commenting on this hadith states that the function of the mujahid is to clarify the sunnah from innovation and disseminate knowledge widely, which is very similar to what Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal said. So the purpose of the mujahid then is to combat religious deterioration and to assure the continuance of the religion and the absence of the Prophet by contextualizing the understanding and practice of the early period for the respective time in which that mujaddid lives. So, when we look at what Imam Ghazali is doing, what was one of the things that he said after he talked about the way uh, the end political akhira? He immediately talked about the way of the pious predecessors, the righteous forebears. And what Imam Ghazali is saying is, this phrase that I'm giving you, if you understand it, you will understand the way of the Salaf. This is the way of the Salaf. Is Now, if I can pause there, this does not mean that you don't have new challenges you have to deal with. Of course you will. Every time there's new challenges. 
And one of the amazing things about the scholarship of Imam Ghazali, and in particular, the Intariq al-Akhirah, he is drawing on a range of different sciences, all of which that he puts into the Intariq al-Akhirah. And even there are philosophical concepts that he wove into the concept of Intariq al-Akhirah seamlessly. And he naturalized them as opposed to appropriated them in a way that no one even knew that they're originally philosophical. And he was critiqued for that. But this is the essence of not having a contradiction between aql and naql, between the rational sciences and the transmitted sciences. And Imam Ghazali is one of the greatest scholars in Islamic history and human history that shows exactly how to do that. If it doesn't directly contradict the Quran and the Sunnah, then the doors are open for it to be integrated. And this is precisely what he did. And one of the great examples of that is using the heart as a mirror. And modern studies have showed that this was initially a philosophical concept, but he uses for the benefit of us to understand how important the heart is in Book 21 of the Ahir al-Muddin. So this is. Very important. This is very important because essentially what, what he's doing then is, is that all of the different challenges of his time, it doesn't mean that you don't confront them, but there's a way of doing so. You have to have a methodology. And um, we will see, for instance, when Osset Amjad's session, I think it's the afternoon session, when he talks about the pitfalls of debate, and um, the pitfalls of debate and its dangers, or the etiquettes of debate and its pitfalls. Uh, one of them is to prioritize your individual obligations and then to prioritize the communal obligations after having focused on your individual obligations. So he gives us a criterion to make sure that we're not going to go astray, thinking that we're actually doing something good. Okay, so now let's talk about the two divisions of Intariq al-Akhirah. Intariq al-Akhirah divides into Ilm al-Mu'amala and Ilm al-Mukashifa. And Ilm al-Mu'amala can be translated the knowledge of praxis. Ilm al-Mukashifa can be translated as the knowledge of unveiling. The idea of mu'amala are your dealings, practical religion, okay? And this includes everything that he talks about in the Ahiyah. So it's, <clears throat> it has an outward dimension and an inward dimension. And there's a difference in the definition between these two. And Imam Ghazali mentions this in his introduction. As for Edmund Mukashifa, only the disclosure of what is known is sought. It's just about knowing that reality. Whereas when it comes to Imam Mu'amala, what's important is the disclosure of what is known along with action in accordance with it. Now, Imam Mu'kashifa is the fruit of Imam Mu'amala. That's the goal. Allah gives you great openings and that you strengthen in certitude 
But Imam Ghazali says in the Ihya, the purpose of this work is only ilm al-mu'amala, not ilm al-mukashifa, which there is no permission to place in books. Even if it is the ultimate aim of seekers and the highest aspiration of the Siddiqeen, the highest saints, yet ilm al-mu'amala is a path to it. The prophets, peace be upon them, only addressed people with the knowledge of the path, i.e., ilm al-mu'amala, and offered guidance to it. As for ilm al-mukashifa, they only referred to it with allusions and subtle indications in a symbolic and general way, knowing that people could not bear the meanings with their limited understanding. Since scholars are heirs of the prophets, they cannot but follow their example and emulate their way. So he's saying, essentially, this whole book <clears throat> will focus on ilm al-mu'amala, not ilm al-mukashifa. Even though, having said that, Imam Ghazali, he gives glimpses. Some of them call it sense of gnosis. Yani, sense of gnosis, or the glimpses of mukashifa, of unveiling where he does it throughout the Ihya, where he'll go on a tangent and he'll start talking about things that really are from Edmund Mukashiva. And then he'll say things like, okay, it's time to pull back the reins and get back to what it is that we're supposed to be discussing. And it's beautiful because it's a key feature of the Ihya. Um, you could call it something like the mystical thread. And it, it encourages you as a reader and energizes you to take the Edmund Muhammad seriously because you start to see the fruit and then you're like, oh, wow, I want to keep doing this because I want that fruit. So this is what he says. Now, Imam Ghazali himself in this book breaks down for us. He mentions various examples of Edmund Mokashwa. So I'm going to quote this in full, even though it's quite long. But it's beneficial because if you like, like, what are the types of things that the Siddiqeen and the great awliya know that other people don't know? Well, Imam Ghazali gives us uh, an insight into that. So he says, Ilm al-Mukashifa is the knowledge of the highest saints and those near to Allah. It is a light that appears in the heart when it is cleansed and purified of, of blameworthy traits. Through that light, certain matters are unveiled that previously one used to hear the names for, and then general meanings for them were imagined without clarity. Okay, is that clear? Then they become clear such that true gnosis is attained of the essence of Allah, his eternal and perfect attributes, his acts and his wisdom in creating this world and the hereafter and his preference for the hereafter over this world, and gnosis of the meaning of prophecy and prophet, the meaning of revelation, the meaning of expression, angels and devils, how shaitan wages war against mankind, how the angel appeared to the prophets, how revelation comes to them, gnosis of the dominion of the heavens and the earth, gnosis of the heart and how the hosts of angels and devils clash therein, Gnosis of the different between, difference between an angelic suggestion and a demonic suggestion. Gnosis of the hereafter, the garden, the fire, punishment in the grave, the traverse, the scales, the reckoning, the meanings of the words of Allah, 
sufficient is yourself against you this day as a reckoner. And the meaning of his words, and indeed, the in in and indeed the home of the hereafter, that is the true life if they only knew. And the meaning of encountering Allah and beholding his noble countenance, the meaning of proximity to him and residing in his presence, the meaning of obtaining happiness in the company of the highest assembly in association with the angels and the prophets, the meaning of the diverse degrees of paradise and of, of paradise's inhabitants to the extent that they see another there as one sees a shining star in the sky. And beyond all this is that which would entail a lengthy explanation. In regard to the meanings of these matters, people have beyond their foundational belief in it, different stations. So when Osadamja was mentioned yesterday, that you might see someone as simple outwardly. They might be outwardly that not too wealthy. Their clothes might be simple. But what are they experiencing inwardly? What do they experience and know that other people don't experience and the other people don't know? And the whole point here is, this is what we should be seeking. In the vast majority of us, we are seeking the opposite of this. We want this in the world. But that will sever our, a connection to these realities. This is the true election and selection. It doesn't matter if creation knows you. It doesn't matter that if creation loves you or likes you or doesn't like you or whatever else. What matters is we become beloved to Allah. And then he commands Jibreel to love us. And then Jibreel that, that tells the people, the angels of the heaven to love us. And then we're given acceptance here. And that's what matters. And we have to go through the process of tahabbub, of doing what we can by learning ilman mu'amala and putting it into practice to become beloved to Allah Jalla Jalalu. He says in a different place, we mean by ilman mukashifa that the cover is raised until the evident truth in these matters manifests itself as clearly as if it were seen by the eye, leaving therein no doubt whatsoever. This is possible within the essential nature of the human being were it not for the accumulation of the rust and dross of worldly defilements on the mirror of the heart. And so we mean by in tariqat akhira, and this is why it's so important, the knowledge of how to polish this mirror from these impurities, which are a veil between us and Allah Most High, and prevent gnosis of his attributes and acts. Assuredly, the purification and cleansing of the heart are attained by renouncing desires and following the examples of the prophets. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon them in all of their states. Thus, commensurate with what is burnished from the heart and with its turning in the direction of the truth, realities will gleam in it but there is no way to save it through there's no way to save it there's no way to it save through spiritual discipline the elucidation of which will follow in its proper place in through knowledge and in learning this knowledge is not written in books and those who allah blessed with something of it only speak openly about it with the qualified who share it who share in it through oral teaching and by way of secrets. These are powerful passages. And so you could say this knowledge that he just alluded to, even though he didn't mention something specific, but still for us, we can understand that, but you don't truly understand unless you yourself experience it. 
You just believe in the people who experience it. And then you set out on the path and hope that from the blessing of your teachers and the blessings of the Prophet Sallallahu that Allah Ta'ala will, will grant you his bounty and that you'll taste it here in this world or at least on the way to your grave. That's what you hope. This is what life is all about. This is the only thing we should be thinking about. It's the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Not your career, not your children, not your friends. Nothing else matters. And I'm not saying that you don't have a career or take care of your children or love them and all that. But this is the only thing that matters. And what a blessing. If you find one other person in your life who also is committed to that and Allah connects you to, what a blessing. One other person. These people are few and far between, especially in the time in which we live. Let alone if you have like a few brothers or a few sisters that, you know, there's degrees, yes, but they're committed to this and that's what they want. What a blessing. What a blessing. There's no blessing greater than that. And it doesn't matter where you are on the face of this earth, that if you have a few of those people with you, even one of those people, one of those people with you, because this is what life is all about. And our daily schedule, our weekly routine should all revolve around this. What do we do on later to Juma? What do we do on the day of Juma? What do we do in the morning? What do we do in the evening? What do we do midday? What do we do? do, do, do? Our whole routine. And Imam Ghazali, in a very practical way, will lay out everything for you. Everything. If you accept. And you won't have time to do everything he tells you to do. <laughs> so you have to do some of it at least. <clears throat> or at least the major categories. And then if you look at the way, for instance, in the place where the fakir was exposed to uh, the teachings of Imam Wazadi really in depth, a uh, city like Tarim, the way that they have embodied this methodology and the way that they have, that, that they, they, they live and breathe in Tariq al-Akhirah and the way that takes form in the society and all the different things that take place throughout the week. Everything is perfectly placed. And all you have to do is follow. And with a little bit of energy, when it's been placed like that for you, la ilaha illallah. This is what they used to say, is that the mustache of, this, of one of the, the sada wouldn't start to grow, except they'd already be mokashif. They'd already be seen unveilings because of tarbiyah. And they used to close the windows at night because so many of even young people would see right around dark that so many things from the unseen. So they'd close the windows. Yani, the point here being, these things are very real and not to live in some type of utopian, idealized reality. No, still to this day, even though it's not the same as it was before, of course, but still to this day, there's examples of young people, a multitude of people and people who've been to this blessed place know what I'm talking about. And this is not the only place on earth. There's other pockets, of course, on earth where this still exists from the bounty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's just that as the world becomes more and more secularized and modern, this knowledge and these people become more and more hidden and you have to go find them, but they still exist. And anyone that's visited the traditional Muslim world knows this. 
And if you don't believe me, now we even have books in English of people who witnessed these stories firsthand. Read Michael Sudrick's book. And that firsthand accounts of things he's experienced. And anyone who, who's lived overseas in these places knows how often these things happen. And this is why these people are grounded. And this is why these people that have a perspective on life, la ilaha illallah, the way they're experiencing this pandemic is very different than the way we're experiencing it here. Very, very, believe me, very different perspective. Very different reality. And we take the means here, of course. And they oftentimes don't have the ability to take the means like we can take them here. Um, nevertheless, they're people of Iman. People of Iman. And a lot of people in those societies are experiencing to various degrees these realities that Imam Ghazali is speaking of. So when we analyze these, these passages, we can uh, make a few statements then about the relationship between ilm al-mu'amala and ilm al-mukashifa. So again, the knowledge of praxis um, that, and the knowledge of unveiling. So ilm al-mu'amala is the foundation upon which ilm al-mukashifa is built and thus must be the first focus of study and practice. That's where we have to begin. We can also say that <clears throat> Ilm al-Mu'amala and Ilm al-Mukashifa are interdependent. In other words, they amplify each other. The more that you tread the path of Ilm al-Mu'amala, the more likely that you receive Ilm al-Mukashifa. The more that you receive Ilm al-Mukashifa, the better it helps you perform the basics and the worship that you're doing. <clears throat> you could also say that Ilm al-Mu'amala and Ilm al-Mukashifa are not equal. That Ibn Mu'amala is subordinate to Ibn Mukashifa, just as the outward dimension of Ibn Mu'amala is subordinate to the inward dimension. Ibn Mukashifa is higher because that's the goal. In four, the goal of religion is to experience Ibn Mukashifa, and thus it is of the greatest eschatological and soteriological significance. Now, so, having said all of that, let's just now, uh, in the remaining time that we have, we have a couple other points to discuss. We want to give it the, the simple breakdown of the knowledge of Ilm al-Mu'amala, and then talk about the structure of the Ahya and how it relates to Ilm Tariq al-Akhirah. So, Ilm al-Mu'amala also breaks down into two divisions, and each one of those two divisions breaks down into two. So, you have four. So, Ilm al-Mu'amala breaks down into outward knowledge and inward knowledge. Outward knowledge and inward knowledge. Outward knowledge breaks down into worship and customs. Inward knowledge breaks down into blameworthy traits and praiseworthy traits. Okay? So, Ilm al-Mu'amala is divided into outward knowledge by which I mean knowledge of the bodily actions and inward knowledge, by which I mean knowledge of the actions of the heart, the members of the body either perform acts of worship or acts that are in accordance with custom, 
while that transpires in the heart because it is shrouded from the senses and belongs to the spiritual realm, the Merakut, is either praiseworthy or blameworthy. Therefore, it is necessary that this science divide into two parts, outward and inward. The outward part, which is connected to the members, is subdivided into acts of worship and acts that pertain to custom. The inward part, which is connected to the states of the heart and the characteristics of the soul, is subdivided into what is blameworthy and praiseworthy. All of them together form four divisions, and, and, uh, and any investigation into ilm al-mu'amana will not go outside of these divisions. So the number 40 here is very significant for Imam al-Ghazali, and uh, a lot could be said about that number, and I think that we might have spoken about that in the past. So each quarter of the Ihya contains 10 books. And essentially, Imam Ghazali wants to give you everything that you need to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a good state. It begins with knowledge. And then right after that, he gets to creed. So the, word, the, the book progresses in that sense. Knowledge sets the frame. How to understand knowledge, what type of knowledge that we should be seeking. And then you have belief, which is, again, forms the basis. And so it build, the Ihya, each book builds on the book that comes before it. Even though each book in and of itself discusses the essence of what the Ihya is about, which is in Tariqat Akhir. So you can read each volume separately. But really the book is, is meant to be read from beginning to end. And so you have 10 books that relate to worship, 10 books that are part of the customary acts that we do. And then the second half of the Ihya relates to the inward dimension of Ilm al the dimension of the heart. In general, the third quarter, so the first quarter of the second half, deals with the blameworthy vices. And the second quarter deals with the same saving virtues. Even though Imam Ghazali, that book 21 of the Ihya is his book on the heart. So he sets the tone for the second half of the Ihya with two books. That the book on the expounding on the, the, the wonders of the heart, uh, the Kitab Sharh Ajayab al Qalb, and then that his book on disciplining the soul, his book on Riyadh al Nafs, where he talks about his, um, what you could term his ethical theory. And then he, after that, goes into the details of what the heart needs to be pured, uh, purified from. Whereas in the last quarter, he talks about the saving virtues. He begins with Toba and he goes where he ends with book 40, which we was our last retreat, uh, which is the book on the remembrance of death and the hereafter and the afterlife. And so um, this is something that Sheikh Abdul Hakim pointed out so beautifully is that book 40 of the Ihya is not an appendix. It represents the culmination. So that you put books 1 to 39 into practice and you're ready then to meet Allah Jalla Jalalu. And so if you look at it, it, the breakdown is amazing. 40 and everything that contains and the significance uh, uh, and all of the different um, the meanings behind this number 40. And, and then that the breakdown of where he put certain books where, and incidentally, book 20 
is the book on the Prophet Like right at the heart of the half, 40 divided by two is 20. Uh, the character traits of our Prophet is right there uh, at the end of the second quarter. And so you can, it's amazing how this was woven together in the way that, that he did. And so the last thing that we will mention here is this structure of the Ihya and in Tariq al-Akhirah. Is that Imam al-Zadi himself says in his introduction, and this shows that this was consciously done. We're not just like reading into this. He says, he gives two reasons for the adoption of the structure. He says, Ilm al-Mu'amid is divided into two parts, outward, zahir, and inward, batin. Outward knowledge is divided further into ibadat and adat, inward knowledge into destructive vices that muhlikat and munjiat. These four divisions comprise the four sections, quarters of the Ihya. So, I mean, it's a natural way because these are the four divisions and it fits very nicely in 240. Now, he said the second reason is, is that he did this to warm the reader's hearts to his ideas by adhering to the scholarly convention found in the works of fiqh, which commonly divide the subject matter into four parts, worship, ibadat, mu'amalat, dealings, marriage, nikah, and justice, jinayat. Now, so in Imam al-Ghazali's conception of the tariq, in tariq al-akhirah, that it includes both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, correct belief and correct practice, as foundational aspects to the path of Allah. True realization of religion in its full depth and amplitude, however, lies in polishing the heart, polishing the mirror of the heart, through a process of ridding the heart of vice and adorning it with virtue with the goal of gaining direct knowledge of Allah. Book one defines this knowledge. Book two lays the foundation for belief. Books through, three through 20 establish the foundation for correct worship. In books, and uh, in, in, in how we should do everything in our lives. In books 21 through 30 for correct dealings. After that point, excuse me, uh, books three to 10, Establish the foundation for worship. Books 11 to 20 for correct dealings. After this point, from books 21 until 40, the progression is found in the spiritual path. And as one author pointed out, there is a progression in the chapters from the humblest duties of a believer to the highest pinnacles of insight. And some of them refer to this phenomenon as the teleological progression of the Ihya's four quarters, remarking that Imam al-Ghazali's aim in the Ahayl al-Madin is his guide to his reader to the knowledge of Allah and the love of Allah, which will result in salvation, sa'ada, in the afterlife, the highest purpose for which human beings were created. The four quarters of the book trace this trajectory, rising from the performance of required rituals in observance of the correct creed, to correct conduct in daily life, to purging the soul and vices that distract from Allah, to cultivating virtues that draw one closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the structure itself <clears throat> that exemplifies the imtariq al-akhirah, just as the content and what remains for us then now is to, um, after understanding that, to embark upon the path, to learn it and to put it into practice. And that if we do so, that no matter what time that we live in, don't think that we, because that we live so, uh, that long after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that we can't experience 
what the people who before us experienced. Um, and even to some degree that you could say it's easier during our time in some ways. It's more difficult in some ways and easier in others. And that it's more difficult because of the complexities of our time and all of the tribulations and fitting and so forth. But the playing field is wide open as well. That in our time, just a little bit of effort because so many people have turned away. Is it very quickly that someone receives blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Especially that if you have teachers that have a direct chain back to Allah, back to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Allah's messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When you connect to these chains, there is immense blessing and immense beauty in it. And that you still have to put in the effort while you don't rely upon your effort. You rely upon the bounty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you're consistent and you persevere and you do what you can, that you will bring great blessings upon yourself and not just yourself, that your family and your friends and your loved ones and the people that are around you and the places that you live. And inshallah ta'ala, the more people that we have taking this knowledge seriously is that the more the lights of guidance are going to spread. This is the secret of da'wah. This is da'wah. If everybody, the more people that you have, let's just speak about our country. The more people that you have that are dedicating themselves to this and on a daily basis taking this seriously, seeking Allah Jalla Jalalu in closest to Him, learning Ilm and Mu'amana, putting it into practice, the more people that you have do that, the more that the lights of guidance are going to spread in this country or wherever it is that people are doing this. This is at the heart of the matter. All of these other trends that come and go are going to come and go. But it doesn't mean that we don't comment them or take part in them sometimes, but never at the expense of this. This is what it is truly about. May Allah Taala give us tawfiq to understand that, to that be grounded in it and to persevere in it solely for his sake, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.